Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church and happy Memorial Day weekend. We have uh, John uh, 15 verse 13 is a, a very popular passage that's read on Memorial Day weekend. And it does, it, the reason it's read is because it's highly applicable. And so it says this, it, Jesus says in John 15 verse 13, he says, greater love has no man or greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, that's a powerful statement in itself. But what makes it super radical is that Jesus is the one who says it. God in the flesh makes that statement, and then he does it. Like, Jesus laid his own life down because of the love that he had for us. And so this is a, a, a passage that's used a lot as we remember and, and we uh, a Memorial Day, we are thinking of and remembering those who have laid their lives down for our nation, for our country. And the reason that's powerful is because what they're doing when they do that, when you lay down your life, when you sacrifice, you are saying that there is something greater than me. There is something that I hold of value that's even more than my own life. And that is extremely powerful. But the reason it's powerful is because it's a shadow of what Jesus himself, that God himself declared and demonstrated with his own life. Because the word sacrifice really means that you're giving up something you love for that which you love even more. So it's a value statement. And so in order to do that, that means that you have to have a higher vision. It requires a grasp of something bigger, something greater, something beyond yourself and beyond what's right in front of you and even beyond this world. And that's why when people lay their lives down in that manner, it's a statement that makes everyone around you go, whoa, what is it? What is that? In other words, to willingly sacrifice it requires a very real grasp of the why behind the what. Otherwise, you're not actually sacrificing. You're just being sacrificed. Because there is a difference. Right? Like, there are those who willingly lay their lives down, as Jesus did. And then there are those who get sacrificed for the sake of another. That's a thing. The difference between the two is love. Because there are those who do things out of a sense of duty. I have to do this or else. And it's actually self-motivated. There's a, there's a begrudging attached to it. But the only thing that could compel someone to willingly lay their life down is greater love. The truth is, is that what Jesus did wasn't just a sacrifice. It was a willing sacrifice for the sake of love which could also be called an offering. That's what an offering is. That is worship. You see, right before Jesus said, greater love has no one than to lay his life down for his friends, he said in the verse right before it, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, it doesn't mean that we're all called to die as martyrs, so calm down. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that. But it is a call to die to ourselves. 
Jesus actually used this kind of language a lot. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So the truth is is that when we die to ourselves, we choose to actively put to death our own selfish desires and put on the way of Christ. So this isn't something that we do at one time. Our our hearts, man, our souls, they are like a car that's constantly getting out of alignment, right? When you're driving down the road and you suddenly, if you take your hand off the wheel, it just is like, and you're in this ditch, right? Or, or, you, or then, then you overcorrect often and then it's like, oh, and we're in this ditch, right? Oftentimes society just reacts to the two, two ditches and it's just like, you ever seen that meme where the lamb gets out of the ditch and just runs over and just jumps right back into the other ditch? That's a, that's a thing. That's often how we are. So we don't react to the ditches. Our, our attention is not on the ditch. Our attention is on the Savior who's walking forward. We're following our King and our Lord. That's what repentance means. It means to return and refix our gaze upon Jesus. And so this isn't something we do once. This is what we do over and over and over again. Not just doing what we think we should do or how we should do it, but looking to King Jesus because we trust him and we follow him. And as we follow Jesus in that way, by dying to self, As we do that, it becomes the most powerful witness this world will ever see. In fact, the word martyr in Greek literally means, it's a Greek word, martyr, it literally means witness. It's become associated with the deaths of Christians, but it actually, it simply means witness precisely because their deaths were a testimony to a much greater love in Christ. The history of martyrdom is the Colosseum was wrought with these men and women and children who willingly laid down their lives because they would not deny Jesus. And as they did, the world around them, Colosseums full of people were seeing this and they were saying, I don't know if I believe it, but they do. That's a real testimony. There was something greater than this world that they were living for, something greater than themselves, a love beyond themselves. Romans 12, verse 1 through 3 says this, or or verse 1, I appeal to you, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So he's appealing to them by, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. It is a mercy when we live willingly sacrificed in this world, laying our lives down. That strength to do that is, the very strength to do that comes from God's mercy to us. 
And so a living sacrifice, again, it's willing. It's offering with your life. It, it is an offering of your life that declares the worth of something greater. It's about the worship of God. And no, that is not a list. <laughs> it's the heart of worship is declaring his worship, his worthiness, right? And so that all that requires letting go of that which we may love for that which we love even more. And that's easier said than done, right? Especially when it comes to self-importance. And we live in a culture that is absolutely saturated with self-importance. Because the reality is, is that we are created to find significance bestowed upon us by him vertically. And then poured out horizontally. But if you get rid of him, all you've got is this. And instead of looking to him to find approval, affirmation, love, security, identity, you then look horizontally to the people around you. And guess what? That's not going to work out for very long. This is the power of and need for looking to him. We just walked through the Beatitudes of verse 1 through 12 in uh, chapter 5, and, and that was a clear indication. It starts vertically. Your vertical relationship with God is what flows into all of the horizontal relationships around you. But if your horizontal relationships have no input, you're not tapped into the source, then you're going to burn out and burn everyone else around you. This is the significance and the need to tap into the source because we then become self-important, self-aggrandizing, self-centered. And 1 Timothy 3 tells us that in the last days, people will become lovers of self. And then he lists off a litany of these characteristics that flow out of being lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Throughout Scripture, you've got lovers of self and that is always juxtaposed or contrasted with a lover of God. And so in so many ways, it, this describes our sort of selfie society today, right? But it's not just about the teenager who's obsessed with Instagram or TikTok. <laughs> like this is an entire culture who's trying to perform and impress. And again, these are ditches that suck us right in. And we try and find that affirmation from one another. It's also, by the way, this has also to do with marriage. Like you cannot put something on your spouse that only belongs to Jesus. Your wife cannot be Jesus to you. Your husband cannot be Jesus to you. Only Jesus can be Jesus. And when you're secure in the love of Jesus, then you can be what Jesus has called you to be to your spouse. But in a world that is continually just looking away from God and only looking to one another for our affirmation, security, identity, love, approval, then we end up being self-centered, self-focused, selfie society. It's an entire culture. Again, performance, impressiveness. Look how smart I am. Look how much I've achieved. Look at my degrees, my accolades, my success, my quality, my resume. Look at my influence and my impact. We think about what we say to kids in society. Like it, and, and we do this in a way that's kind of like we're, the heart behind it is, is good. What, what do we say to young kids? You're going to do great things one day. One day, you're going to be really important. One day, you'll be significant, impressive, and celebrated, and loved. And we call that boosting their self-esteem. And it comes, again, oftentimes it comes from a good place, but really it's just fanning the flames of narcissism and self-centeredness in these kids. 
right? I mean, but the more self-consumed we become, the more detached we will become from true value. And the more averse then we'll be to anything that even smells like willing sacrifice. Because why would you sacrifice yourself for anything if yourself is the one you worship? And then that, again, manifests always in the way that we worship or even what we worship. Worship becomes self-centered. It becomes consumeristic, cynical, even suspicious. Lovers of self only go to church if they think that they're going to get something out of it. And it becomes dutiful, even joyless burden. That is not the abundant life that Jesus has for us. It doesn't mean we don't serve. It doesn't mean we don't love. But it means that we put him front and center in it all. Lovers of God live for something, or rather someone, greater. As the late Tim Keller put it, and you guys are going to have to deal with a lot of Tim Keller quotes now because they're swirling everywhere after he's passed and they're all so good. <laughs> um, as he put it, we don't need higher self-esteem and we don't need lower self-esteem. We simply need more God-esteem. And so this morning, we're continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, where Jesus says this. He's speaking to his disciples, and he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there's a lot of questions that come out of this passage, right? There's a number of things that immediately come to my own mind. First, what's, what good works is Jesus talking about here? Good question. What kind of good works is he talking about? Second, what does being the salt of the earth even mean? And what does being the light of the world even mean? Because he's, this is your identity. He's saying this is who you are if you're in Christ. So it's important to know what he's talking about. And then finally, he seems to imply that we can become ineffective by losing our saltiness and hiding our light. So the question is, how do we stay salty and let our light shine? Good question. Now again, what does it even mean? Now some of you may be shocked to find out that what he means here by good works and what he's talking about by letting your light shine it may be something different than you might have originally thought, or at least more than what you originally thought. So we're going to walk through this passage together, and we're going to sort of back-engineer this text by looking at the last verse first. We're going to start with verse 16, and we're going to drop back and walk through those images of salt and light, okay? And so as a roadmap, I've got three points for you uh, as we go through it, and these may not make sense at first, so uh, bear with me, all right? Here we go. So number one, the first point uh, that we're going to get into is whatever you do, don't neglect the oil of intimacy. Whatever you do, don't neglect the oil of intimacy. Number two, salt is best 
when it's spread out. Okay? And number three, if you want to stay salty and keep burning, you've got to consistently soak in the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else this morning from what I'm saying, here's what I want you to get. When God's people consistently posture themselves as his beloved children in his presence, they become conduits of his grace and goodness to an otherwise dark and bland world. Now today actually happens to be Pentecost Sunday. So today is the day that we celebrate and remember what took place in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus was resurrected from the grave and he lived with his disciples, like he's walking with them, talking with them, and, and, he's, and he's telling them about the kingdom. We don't have a whole lot of information about what he said. Man, I wish I did. That would be great. I'm like, what did the resurrected, bodily resurrected Jesus, like what were those conversations like? We have some snapshots, but not a lot. But, um, and then though, he is about to ascend into heaven and he tells his disciples not to leave, but to stay in the city. And he says that he, he's going to basically send the Holy Spirit to them. All right? And so this is the, the power of Pentecost. It's 50 days later from Passover. And so this is what we're, so we're like 50 days from Easter, right? That's today. And then they're in the upper room and they're praying and they're, they're uh, kind of hiding from the world a little bit, right? But they're praying and, and uh, suddenly a rushing wind fills the room and like tongues of fire hit them and they all get filled with the Holy Spirit and they start sharing the good news and the mighty works of God. And that was the birth of the church. The very reason God died on the cross is that we would have access to his spirit. This is the power of what we have access to. This is the reason that, that the gospel even, this is the, the heartbeat of the gospel is this relationship that we now have access to. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. This is kind of one of the things that I like about, uh, you know, this. I woke up this morning, walked outside, Memorial Day weekend, supposed to be sunny. I'm wearing jeans again, a long sleeve shirt. You know, you got plaid out there. It looks like it's, you know, November. Um, and it's a little frustrating, right? Anybody else? Am I alone? Uh, Virginia Beach weather's not supposed to be. Yeah, Colin, he's, he's, he's rocking his uh, jacket. Um, so I'm a little bit like, you know, I, I, I wake up and it's raining again and it's a little cold. And I'm like, ah, uh, I got convicted. And I felt like the Spirit of God was saying, hey, receive my rain. Like, receive this. You know that rain is a blessing? The rain throughout, especially scriptures, it, it's a blessing. And sometimes we're so, we want to hide from it. And, and I just, man, I, I just got this visual. And I, I remember when I was a teenager, I had the poster of the Shawshank Redemption. Remember that? Ten Robins, he climbs out of a uh, jail cell, he breaks free, and he's covered in filth, and he comes out, and it's raining, and he's like, freedom, and there's like that poster of him, he's just like, wow, like that, he's taking out microphones, and he's just, and it, the rain just washes him clean. Like, I felt like the Spirit of God was saying, receive my rain, receive that. Because in many ways, it does represent the blessing of his presence. And again, rain calls forth to that seed of promise. And it beckons it to come forth 
and flourish. And I pray this morning as we go through this, that God would, by his Holy Spirit, beckon forth that seed of promise in your own life to flourish. So now look back with me at verse 16. Matthew 5, verse 16 says this. It says, in the same way, again, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So he's just said, right? He's just said, you're salt and you're light. Stay salty and let your light shine. But why? Why? He starts with the why behind the what. We love the why behind the what here, right? so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I want to start here with that why behind the what, because I think this gets twisted a whole lot. Like, like what good works is he talking about here? One of the fundamental mistakes that people make when reading the Bible is that they take one sentence and they read it within their own context in a way that makes the most sense to them at the time. So for example, if you're an artist or a painter and you read this and, it, and, and you might think, okay, well, if I, if I paint really well, right, then people will give glory to my Father in heaven. Like I'll be able to sell my works and, and then God will be like, wow, you're an amazing painter. Jesus must be Lord. Or, or say, say if you're an athlete, you might read this and think, okay, if I hit home runs and I play well and I win championships and I get touchdowns and, and then people will see my good works and give glory to God, right? Like the Super Bowl MVP, right? He gets up in front of everybody. He's got the capture of everybody's attention and he goes, I, guys, I just want to give all glory to God. And he's justified a life of idolatry for that moment in time. And then he says, okay, God gets all the glory, right? Now, I'm not knocking him, not necessarily idolatry, but that's great, that's great, but is that necessarily what this is even talking about? Do people see that and go, man, God is amazing? Follow me. If I work hard and I produce, if I'm successful at my job, if I'm revered by other people, if I earn people's respect, then, then people will see my good works and give glory to my Father who is in heaven. Then people will want to be like me. Then I will have a place to share the gospel in their lives. But right now, until they respect me, revere me, want to be like me, I can't talk about Jesus because eh, what kind of testimony is that? tell you what kind of testimony that is. It's a testimony that's not all about me. It's a testimony that's about the one who has done everything for me. But is that what Jesus is talking about here? Like, has anyone actually surrendered their heart to Jesus because the Super Bowl MVP said that he wanted to give all glory to God? P.S. I do think, man, I love it. Like there, there are guys that have done that. I'm like, praise God. I think they're genuinely amazing Christians. And they love Jesus a whole lot. One of these days, though, I'm telling you, one of these days, somebody's going to get up there and they're going to get that Super Bowl MVP and they're going to have the attention of the whole world. And they're going to say, you know what? I just want to give all glory to God. And so um, if everyone will bow your heads, let's pray. And then just pray to him. That would be amazing. I, that One day that's going to happen. Um, so if you guys ever win the Super Bowl MVP, do that. Um, 
So again, praise God for that, but I think that it's a bit naive to believe that anyone actually comes to saving faith that way. Now, of course, God can use anything. That's not what I'm saying, but it's often how this passage is used, right? This is the reason why we think that if a celebrity comes to Christ, it's better than the guy who's working at a gas station. That's not necessarily how the kingdom works, guys. In fact, the kingdom is upside down. Now, often how this passage is like, okay, you may have even heard the saying, share the gospel often and when necessary, use words. You ever heard that before? Share the gospel often and when necessary, use words. Like I'll just do good works and then people will suddenly fall in love with Jesus. I mean, I've, I've heard people preach this. That's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, by the way. That's a, a, a man, actually an amazing godly man, lived a long time ago. He never said that and he would never say anything like that. But this, like, if you, if you live in ways people see how kind and good and generous you are, and then they'll ask why you are the way you are, and then you get to tell them about Jesus, but there's, that's actually, guys, that's, that's the heartbeat behind the prosperity gospel. Like, look how great I am. Now come meet the one who can make you awesome like me, rich like me, prosperous like me. That's actually a false gospel that's built around self-worship. But that's not the message of grace. The message... And that's, that's actually the message of the world. The message of grace is a message not of the self-important, but the poor in spirit who have found all that they could ever hope and imagine in Christ. The gospel of grace is fundamentally poor in spirit, which we talked about last week. The gospel message of Jesus isn't works, it's news. It's the best news. That's why a friend of mine, it's J.D. Greer, he always says, Share the gospel often, and when necessary, use words. Is like saying, share your phone number often, and when necessary, use digits. Think about that. Some of you didn't quite get that. How do you share your phone number without using digits? You can't! You can't share the gospel without using words because the gospel itself is good news. This is the gospel that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die and he conquered death in the grave. He conquered the barrier that our sin deserves from God and he paved the way through the resurrection and he eliminated that barrier that our sin deserves and he gave us access to the presence of God eternal life, and it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but the moment we place our faith and hope in what Christ has done for us, but there's a reason for that. So many people stop there. So many people are like, okay, I've placed my faith and hope in Jesus Christ, and now I'm looking for what, forward to what will happen one day. But the reality is, is that that veil has been split the moment you place your faith in Christ. And now you have access to his very real, very present, very abundant Holy Spirit. Now. And it's just a down payment for what's to come then. This is the gospel. Tim Keller, another quote. Ready? Here we go. The gospel is not just about going to heaven when we die, but about bringing heaven down to earth while we live. But that only happens when you're tapped in to the source, abiding in Him, not just trying to do all the right things, but living out of that righteousness 
from the inside out. So again, what good works does he have in mind here? Good question. Like we're not saying that the good that good works are wrong. That's I'm saying he's got a specific kind of good works here. I'm not saying like people take this for granted and they're like, okay, well now I'm just gonna go rob the gas station down the street, right? And then say, well, you know, Jesus has covered my sins and that's the gospel. No, that's not that's not what we're talking about here. But he has a specific type of works in mind. There's a context here. And when you read this passage in context, it's clear that the works that Jesus is talking about here are the works that flow out of that intimate sonship that we now have with the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. So look at the look at the context here. Matthew 5. Let's drop back to chapter uh, chapter 5 verse 11. So just before this passage, this is what we preached, uh, this is what we talked about last week. This is the context. It says this, chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then it flows right into, in that context, okay? They're persecuted, they're reviled, and he's saying, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. That's your action. Rejoice and be glad in the midst of really extreme difficulty. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see that? You're pretty salty when you're rejoicing in the midst of difficulty like that. You know why? because you're living a life that's only possible. You're having a response that's only possible when you're tapped into the source. Verse 14, again, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Say, Father to your Father who is in heaven, not your slave master, not a distant God who is demanding obedience in every moment, dutifully or else, but your Father, your Abba, your Daddy, who loves you. It's a different kind of relationship. Not a slave master relationship, a son-father relationship. When you do those good works, they're going to recognize those are the fruit, those works are the symptoms of someone who has a good this is a different kind of relationship. The immediate context for being salt and light in a bland and dark world, the immediate context for shining good works and bringing glory to your Father who is in heaven is persecution and reviling, not achievement. It's not just about how you live when things are going great. The real testimony happens when things don't go the way you had hoped they would go. That's when the witness comes, man. Like when people abandon and betray and revile. See, you're not always responsible for what happens to you, but you are always responsible for how you respond. And so we've been called to bless even those who curse us. And guys, the only way any of that is possible is if you're soaked in the security and affirmation and approval and love of your heavenly daddy. The good works that shine and ignite others to give your Father in heaven 
glory are those works that signify a secure identity as his beloved child. Guys, that's different in this world. That's real different. There is no other religion, philosophy, or any other. That is the only people that can live that way are Christians who are filled with his spirit. You just remember Tim Tebow? Remember this guy? <laughs> he was a Christian football player who was really outspoken about his faith. Homeschoolers loved him, right? Because he was a homeschooler. He was, he was actually a child of uh, missionary parents from the Philippines. Um, but he, he was a Heisman Trophy winner in college, quarterback. And he went to the NFL, and he led the struggling team, the Broncos, who weren't very good at all, and he led them to a division title and a playoff victory. In 2011, it was kind of this radical, like, turnaround. But then he gets traded the next year, and he struggles from team to team to team until he was eventually let go. He even tried to play minor league baseball for a while, which, okay, cool, right? But Tim's loudest witness was not when everything was going right. His loudest witness was not when he was scoring touchdowns and doing the Tebow prayer thing in the end zone, right? I mean, praise God for that. But his loudest witness, he shined brightest in the way he lived when it all seemed to fall apart. Like, I think it was the late Hall of Famer Jim Brown who said, you can love the game, but the game ain't going to love you back. The game didn't love Tebow back. Right? But he was secure. And I think that that was the witness. The way Tim lived when the game didn't love him back was a symptom of a deeper love and security that he had in Christ than anything that this world could offer. That's a witness. And I'm not, Tebow is not Jesus, okay? So if, I don't know if he's done anything, whatever. Like, just, <laughs> but that's our testimony. Our witness is how we Love the Lord. And how we are, receive the love of the Lord in Christ. The thing that sets a son apart from a slave is the intimate knowledge of the Father's love. Not just the head knowledge, but knowing deep down, experiencing the Father's delight and walking in your identity as his beloved child. Like allowing the Spirit to get deep down into the crevices of your heart and all of those places in your soul where you have a tendency to look to this world or the things of this world for affirmation and approval and, 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 and all those things. This is the part, this is the same None of you have arrived here yet. This is why we need to continually tap into that. And why you, I mean we, right? Me too. This is why we have to allow His Spirit to, to posture ourselves to continually soak in His presence. Not just head knowledge. This is what Jesus offers us. This is the power of the gospel. This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you can fake it when things are going well, but when things hit the fan and all this world holds dear is suddenly gone, it's those who truly know the love of God in Christ. That sonship love. That unconditional, never-ending, unrelenting, steadfast love of the Father. That's what brings out the flavor in this life, guys. That's what lights up the world even in the darkest of nights. That's the kind of good works that I think Jesus is talking about here. That's the stuff that seasons this world and brings out the flavor, man, and lights it up. 
And I realize again, Tebow's story, not necessarily one of persecution, right? So, so just to drive the point home here, though, let's use a story of full-on persecution. Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand, a pastor in communist Romania in the 1970s. He wrote a book called Tortured for Christ after he was imprisoned for 14 years and tortured. Radical book. I dare you to read that book. But beware, it's going to mess you up in a really good way. He writes this account, Tortured for Christ, about how he and, and a, a, a group of other Christians had worked out a deal with these guards. They were in prison because they were sharing the good news of Jesus and being the church. And um, Communist Romanians imprisoned them. And so he says they worked out a deal with the guards. Um, and they said that the deal was that they would continue praying together and telling the guards about Jesus. And the guards would then continue torturing them. And tortured them, they did. Uh, they would continue, they would uh, beat them, they would mock them, they would mockingly force them to take communion with their own feces. It was beyond imagination, the stuff that he accounts that they would do. But Wormbrand wrote, whew, of the deep love and the very experienced presence of the Holy Spirit throughout the entire experience. He actually wrote this. It's one of my favorite quotes because it's, it, sh it shows just how good and present and beyond this world the Spirit of God is to us. He wrote that in, the, in those worst moments of torture, our souls were caught up in the Holy Spirit and our bodies far below. The cell walls shimmered like diamonds and we would not have given up those moments of torture for that of kingly palaces because the Spirit was so thick on them that it was legit joy. Think about that. We would not have given up those moments of torture for that of kingly palaces. Whew! Guys, their witness was so strong that even some of the guards who had been forced to beat them would then come to Christ and then be imprisoned alongside them. Because they, that's a testimony. That's a witness. Those are good works. That's someone who's known and loved and has tapped into the whole point of creation itself. And it goes beyond this world. And that, I believe, is the kind of works that flow forth from a heart, again, truly saturated in the Spirit of God. And that's what Jesus is talking about. In fact, the images Jesus uses here to describe these works perfectly illustrate this principle. Again, we're back engineering this passage, okay? So look at verse 14. We've just looked at verse 16. Now let's look at 14 and 15, okay? So he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. First of all, I want you to notice he doesn't say you could be the light of the world if you follow these 10 steps and are good little boys and girls. It's not what he says, Okay? He speaks directly to your true identity in Christ. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, which means how you live and how you steward the light that's been given to you to be shining through you matters. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And so the image here is of an ancient Near Eastern lamp, right? So I want you to picture Aladdin's lamp. You guys know that one? You got Aladdin, right? 
Um, that's not too far off from something they would have used and what's, what he has in mind here. It would have been a canister full of oil, like they've got the little lamp, the handle, and then it's got a top. You pull the top off and you fill it full of oil, probably olive oil, and then you've got a wick that is soaking in that oil and coming out the sort of spout of the lamp, and then you would light that uh, wick that soaks in the oil, and then you would sit it on a stand in the middle of the room, and it would light the whole room. Okay? And so... Uh, the imagery matters a lot because throughout the Bible, oil represents the Holy Spirit. Throughout scriptures, oil represents the Holy Spirit. It's the oil of anointing, the oil of gladness, the oil of his presence, the oil of intimacy that fuels our fire, which gives off light. Now, you can light a wick with no oil, but it ain't going to shine very long. It's going to burn up pretty quickly and then burn out because it's not tapped into the source. So a lamp with no oil is a lamp that has the appearance of godliness, but it has denied its power. may be able to provide a little light at first, but that wick's just going to flicker out and burn out. In the book of Revelation, lampstands actually represent local churches that are giving light to the world and guiding the way to the throne of heaven. It's a powerful and profound image in, in Revelation. And Jesus has a warning, though, to a particularly theologically astute church in the city of Ephesus. And he writes in Revelation 2 a letter specifically to this particular local church. And they were probably, at the time, Ephesus would have been the most educated of all those churches at the time. But Jesus sends them this very stern warning. Revelation 2, verse 4, says this, I have this against you. When Jesus has something against you, like, time to listen, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, which means turn, and do the works you did at first. What kind of works is he talking about? Good question. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what kind of works is he talking about? Love. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. They're, they're doing great things. It was just loveless. So he's going to remove the lampstand. Follow this. Without the love of God, without the oil of the Spirit, it's just an empty lampstand. There's no flame. Maybe it was flickering out. But by the time he's removes that lampstand, all it is is just a lampstand with no light, no oil. It's just taking up space, no light, no oil, just dead, dry religion without any real power. You see, the power, the fuel for the fire of the true Christian life, the fire, the, the oil, the source for risen church, guys, is the Holy Spirit. And soaking in the Holy Spirit it's not simply about what you know. It's about who you know and whose you are and who you delight in and the delight that you delight in. Like this was a call that Jesus gave to repent. It was a call to love. It was a call to fill your lamp with the oil of the Spirit that fuels the fires that light the world. This is how the gospel goes forward. This is who we're called to be. Matthew 25. And then we're going to wrap it up quickly here. Matthew 25, verse 2. If this parable hasn't been called to mind already in some of you, it will now. 
Jesus told a parable about ten bridesmaids who were to keep a lookout for the coming bridegroom who would be coming for his bride. Like, so, you got, right? so you've got like bridesmaids, the, the, the bridegroom is coming, it's wedding night, this is about to go down, this is going to be fantastic. It's a picture of the, 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 the time where Jesus comes back to earth. That's what he's telling, that's what he's talking about. And so these bridesmaids were sent out to wait and watch for the bridegroom who represents Jesus coming for his bride. It would be the return of Jesus Christ is what he's talking about here. Jesus tells this parable, and he says, so there's 10 of them. Matthew 25, verse 2, he says, five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Trumpets, you know. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, which means they lit them and they... And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Guys, listen to me. You can't live off somebody else's relationship with the Lord. You can't. It's not about your parents. It's not about who you associate with. This is about you and God at the end of the day. You've got to go to the source. Look at verse 10. While they were going to buy... The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Sound familiar? He says the same thing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I never knew you. I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Again, this isn't something that you can put off to the last minute. This intimate relationship, man, it's cultivated now. It's not, a, it's not an exam you cram for on the night before, right? And this isn't like a, a fire, this isn't a Joe Dirt, like, he's coming back, so you got to be ready, right? Joe Dirt, anybody? Remember that? No? Okay. <laughs> but the point is, this isn't a threat. This is the opportunity. This is reality that this is what we have to cultivate in him, relationship, intimacy, soaking in the oil of his spirit, even now. Jesus is, in fact, coming. This isn't something that we are, you know, are going to get to at the end of our life when we get around to it or when things settle down. Like This is prioritizing our time with him in his presence, knowing him and being known by him. That's what fuels our expectation and even our vision in the meantime. This is the first application point here. Whatever you do, whatever you do, don't neglect the oil of intimacy. Whatever you do, do not neglect the oil of intimacy. That's how you'll shine the true light of the gospel in a dark world. Now, what about the image of salt? Verse 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So first of all, think about what salt is. Especially in the ancient world, it was very prized. It was prized for 
uh, many reasons. Practically, salt slows the decay of meat. Okay? It can even clean a wound, although it would be painful, right? Salt in a wound, right? It stings, but it cleans. Salt also brings out the flavor. You know that, right? Put salt on just about anything it touches, it's better, right? And all the southern people said, amen. (laughs) One of the most interesting things, though, about salt is in the ancient world, which they would have been familiar with, the readers and hearers of this originally would have been very familiar with how salt was obtained. We just go to the store and get pure salt in a container, right? But the way they obtained it back in the first century was they would take a branch, something like a branch, and they would soak it in salt water. Remember, the Dead Sea wasn't too far from them. So they would take a branch and they would soak it in salt water, and then they would take that branch and they would let it dry in the sun, and all the water would evaporate off of it, and then they would sh- it would be covered in salt. And they would shake that out over something like a cooking lamb or meat. And that's how they would use it. That's how it would get salt. But after a while, that salty branch would lose its saltiness. The pure salt would run out or shake out, and all that would be left was impure salt that doesn't have any taste or flavor, and so it would be thrown out or used for footpaths. That's how they did it. And so how do you regain the saltiness on that branch? You've got to soak it back in the sea of salt. You've got to so contextually, this would have, if you think about this, they, he, he speaks again directly to the identity of his disciples, to those who would be filled with and soaked in the Holy Spirit. That's who he's talking to. And he tells them, you're going to bring good flavor, the good flavor of creation out. You're going you're gonna to be the ones that trace goodness of everything back to the goodness of God, back to the source, abundant life and joy and how it all points to the glory of God. But, and by doing so, you'll act to preserve a people from this world of decay, a remnant, a people who are holy, acceptable, and delightful to God. You're going to preserve them to be accepted by God, not rotten. This is what salt does. A people who are providing healing, even though that healing may sting, because salt and wounds stings, and the gospel is offensive to a self-centered world, but it heals. But just like with the lamp, the wick needs to soak in the oil. Just like with the branch, you've got a br- that branch. It's almost like the branch needs to go back to the soaking, the abiding we're just saying about it. Connected to the vine, it's all about being connected to the source. And just like with the lamp, it's not designed to be hidden under a basket. This is the second point. Salt is best when it's spread out. You ever gotten a bite of salt that just clumps up together and you're like, ah, right? That's the second point. Salt is best when it's spread out. Like if salt only gathers with salt and it never brings its flavor and the seasoning to this world in need, it loses its effectiveness and purpose in the world altogether. This is why we're called to live our abundant, joyful, grateful, and delightful life in Christ out loud. Not to just show everyone how wrong they are, but to testify to how good he is. Like if the only one or the only time you're talking about Jesus is when you're gathering together with the church or with other Christians, if that's the only time you're talking about Jesus, guys, you may have lost sight of the purpose for your saltiness in the first place in this world. 
You see, people think that in order to talk about Jesus, you have to be arguing. <laughs> but that's because they aren't operating as lovers of God. When you're soaking in Him, when you're worshiping Him, it's going to come out everywhere you go. Let it sh- just shake it all over me. Just Jesus everywhere. This is, this is what we're called to do. Like lovers of self just want to be right, but lovers of God just want people to worship. They want you to see what we see and know who we know and hear who we hear. It's important to stand for truth. Yes, do that. Stand for truth. But if that's all you're doing when you're talking to those who don't know him, you've probably missed the point entirely. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give that devastating sound bite or that snarky one-line zinger. It shuts down the competition. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that at all. What does it say? It says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What's that? The hope that what? Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. It matters. You know why? The goal isn't to win the argument. It's to win the person to Jesus. It's to bring the flavor and the healing and the light of the gospel to bear upon a world in deep need. You miss that point and you will miss the point. So how do we keep that purpose front and center? Good question. Jesus seems to make it clear that we have a tendency to lose sight of what matters. And that's why when we lose our saltiness or put our light under a basket, this leads us to the third and final point. If you want to stay salty and keep burning, you've got to consistently soak in the Holy Spirit. Just like the branch was soaked in that salty water and that lamp wick is soaked in the oil, we need to continually soak in His Spirit. You need to posture yourself in the sea of His Spirit. Get salty and then shake it out all over everybody everywhere at all times, not just the church. That doesn't mean, again, being obnoxious. It just means being yourself. And if that is obnoxious sometimes, let his grace cover it. Don't let that paralyze you for fear of how you'll be perceived. We often err on being silent more than we do on being obnoxious. And sometimes, look, you just have to realize that people don't want to hear about Jesus. They're just going to say that you're obnoxious. And the truth is is that, you know how many times people have come to me over the years and been like, had people to ask me to never talk to them again and then years later come up to me and say thank you those seeds changed my life and i'm not trying i mean love people right <laughs> but this is the point if, if you're a lover of god and you're soaking him up then everybody who comes into contact with you runs the risk of getting pretty salty themselves jesus is known as the oily one That's what Messiah means. Christ literally means. Christ, Messiah, Greek and Hebrew, it literally means the oily one. Because they would anoint with a half gallon of olive oil. They'd just dump it on their head. That was how a king would be anointed with the spirit, a, a picture of the spirit of God. And you know what somebody who's oily, you know what happens when you get hugged by them? You get oily. Does that make sense? This is imagery. This is, so, so what does this look like? Like practically, what does it look like to consistently posture yourself in the oil of his goodness and presence, like in that everlasting fountain? 
it looks like consistently practicing rhythms of grace. And we're going to talk about this over the next few weeks. Rhythms of grace. Say rhythms of grace. Again, if you miss the why behind the what here, these rhythms are just going to become burdensome rituals and empty traditions that lead to empty lampstands with no oil. Okay? It's not about the ritual. It's about what the rhythm points you to, how it postures you before the presence of God and in the presence of God and reminds us of who we are and whose we are. And it's the practice of delighting in His delight. And so this is all about relationship. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? This isn't just about having your theological categories all impressively figured out. Guys, that's not what Christian maturity is about. The truth is, is that all theology, all that theology, all that stuff is great, but only insofar as it points you to love Jesus more. Anything less is just intellectual barriers and empty philosophies that are designed to just puff up your ego. John 5, verse 39, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Guys, we love the Bible. We love the scriptures. But the reason we love the scriptures is because they point us to Jesus. If they're just pointing you to yourself being more impressive and smart, then now all you're doing is using the name of the Lord for your own vain purposes. That's what it's really like to use the name of the Lord in vain. So this is all about meeting with him, desiring him, relationship with him. The only reason it's important to us is because of how it points us to himself and through the power of his spirit. And so this is getting it in you again. This is the entire point of his word. We're called to be a people of word and spirit. There's plenty of people who read the Bible and never come to the one the Bible's pointing to. May that not be Risen Church. May we soak up the bread of life and feast on the river of life in his spirit, okay? Now, one more warning here. There are also plenty of spiritual people who reject the counsel of God's word and then subject themselves to the litany of spirits who are happy to masquerade as the Holy Spirit. Demons are real. That stuff is dangerous. Stay in the word. Okay? That's why it's important to be grounded in biblical community and spiritual authority to help humbly discern and weigh everything according to God's word. So over the next week, uh, next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to start talking more about these rhythms of grace. And so the first one is consistently meeting with God in word and prayer in the spirit, okay? And so, we're, in fact, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to roll out for you a Bible reading plan for the summer. It's going to go through the four Gospels over a period of 90 days, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's going to be a great opportunity for us to soak in the life and ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as a church as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So, all of this is because when God's people consistently posture themselves as his beloved children in his presence, they become conduits of his grace and goodness to an otherwise dark and bland world. Let's pray.